0: Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students podcast. In session three of EPIC, Matt Densky talks about the origin of the villain. We look at Acts 7-8 through and the story of Saul. Matt talks about how God's plan has always prevailed, even when people have tried to stop what God was doing. He also talks about how control and comfort can become idols that distract us from what God is doing, the same way control became an idol for Saul as he tried to stop people from talking about Jesus. Matt challenges us to set these idols aside and pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. We hope you enjoy this message from Epic 2020. Guys, we've got a lot to cover tonight, and so I hope you're ready. We're going to summarize like two two chapters tonight. We're going to move kind of quick, but the title of tonight's message is The Origin of the Villain, The Origin of the Villain. And just like in, thank you, JJ, just like in, ooh, (laughs) scary, just like in comic books and the movies based around the comic books and superheroes, there's always a bad guy, right? Batman has his Joker, and apparently the entire Marvel franchise has their Thanos, right? Like, yeah. Uh, So there's always the bad guy that's like set out to disrupt and thwart and like, Uh, destroy what the good guy is trying to do. And tonight's no different. And there's a villain within the early movement of Christianity. Like when this whole thing began, when when Jesus empowered his disciples with his spirit, and they started to go out and proclaim, and uh, what Dallas uh, invited us into, bless you. Oh my gosh, bless you. (laughs) Oh, COVID. Uh, When Dallas... Invited us, invited us in this morning uh, into the heroes, the early heroes of our faith, being filled with the Spirit, uh, moving from fear-filled to faith-filled, and proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the words of God, uh, and accomplishing the works of God. The movement, the early movement, had a villain, someone who was just bent on on stopping, who was bent on destroying, who wanted to make sure that this movement of Jesus followers, they weren't even called Christians yet, that didn't come till later. This movement of Jesus followers was destroyed. And he goes by the name of Saul. Saul. Not like Saul the movie, like, <laughs> like not the not that movie. <laughs> That'd be villainous for sure. S-A-U-L Saul, okay. That is his name. He goes by the name Saul, and he is the villain of the early movement of those who would follow Jesus. And Saul decided to take it upon himself to stop this whole movement. In Saul's eyes, like people following Jesus were like these little fires that were starting to arise all around him, and it was his job to like, tss, tss, tss. and when big ones would break out, like stop them. You know what I mean? Like he started to grow a reputation as the villain. Saul became a hunter of people who followed Jesus. He would literally come to your city. He would ask around. He would hunt you down, bust into your house. (laughs) Who's following Jesus in here? Arrest you, seize you, throw you in jail, beat you, torture you, or worse. Saul had the reputation as a hunter of those who followed Jesus. He was the villain. He wanted to snuff this whole movement out, and he took it upon himself to do so. He took pride in it. He enjoyed it. He thought this whole whole Jesus thing, the whole following, the whole movement needed to be stopped and destroyed. He was the villain. Now, the amazing thing is, the interesting thing about Saul is he actually believed in God. Like, that's what's so perplexing about this whole, this whole thing. Saul believed in God. In Saul's eyes, this whole movement, this Jesus thing, was not of God. This whole new thing that you guys are claiming, this movement, the way, this spirit, whatever you guys are talking, this is not of God. And Saul, in the name of God, tried to stop the movement of God. Ain't gonna happen, bro. <laughs> but Saul's whole philosophy in life, I think was driven by two things. And these two things still impact us today. They motivate us today. And I think any motive out of these two things is incredibly dangerous, but especially when these two things uh, mix with each other, when they complement one another, when when they're partnering with one another, it can be devastating. I think Saul's worldview and his mentality was based out of control and comfort. Control and comfort. See, for Saul, it was like, like, no, the way we believe in God is right. And this whole movement is disrupting things and and we sense that we're losing control and control breeds power, control breeds position, control breeds status, it breeds stability. And when you have the, the mindset of control, all you want to do is maintain control. And so you will strive and fight and do whatever you can to keep that control because that's what you've become accustomed to. And for Saul, control maintaining control meant let's snuff out this whole movement of jesus they're disrupting too much they're causing too many ripples these spirit-filled people they're messing the whole thing up and the partner to that comfort when you become used to a certain thing for so long you don't know how to think about life any differently when you live at a certain plane or a certain status for so long, to, to change that up seems, seems such an inconvenience that sometimes it can even drive people to say, "Not, nah, we ain't changing. I mean, take COVID as a case study. Coming up on a year almost We started to see this thing started to unfold last January. Think about in the past year how these two things have been motives in our heart. Control and comfort. Think about the disruption that has taken place and how we've responded. Some of us are annoyed. Some of us are perplexed. Some of us are bitter. We're frustrated about everything because COVID this and COVID that. It's created such divisiveness in our country. It's become so politicized. Some people are like struck with fear and worried and anxious about it all. The, the, the disruption of control and comfort is firsthand in our lives right now. We don't like it. For Saul, this movement of those who followed Jesus was disrupting control and comfort. And think about it. If control is the agenda You don't know how to submit to God. When control is your worldview, you don't know how to submit because submission means letting go. Submission means, Jesus, you're in control of my life, not me. My future, my plans, where I want to go to college, what I want to be one day, where where I'm going to live one day, who I'm going to date. Ow! It is all up to you. You have control, not me. When curveballs come, I lean into you. Not my strength, but you. But when the agenda is control, we don't know how to submit. When the agenda is comfort, we don't know how to sacrifice. We don't know how to to give to God. We don't know how to give him our future. We don't know how to give him our dating life. We don't know how to give him our private life. We don't know how to give him our time. We don't know how to give him our attention. We don't know how to give him our money. We don't know how to give them those things because we don't know how to sacrifice, because we're so afraid of losing comfort. And when we lose comfort, it's an inconvenience. When these are paired together, it is is one of the most dangerous combinations. Because we don't know how to submit, and we don't know how to sacrifice, and we are driven by comfort and control. Saul is this dude who belonged to this religious uh, 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 infrastructure, And for him, he had position. He had status, all the right things. He knew the right people. He talked the right way. He had the right mentors in life. He surrounded himself with the right uh, circles. Like he did everything right. He was an influential man. He had status. People looked to him. They respected him. And he didn't want to lose that. He believed in God, and yet he couldn't see what God was doing. And that's really where comfort, control and comfort come in they they make us blind to what God is doing right in front of us we resist we hang on to to our old life we're so afraid of moving forward with what God is doing and so Saul the villain of the early movement began to hunt Christians down throw them in prison beat them threaten them even kill them he was a villain and I, I want us to look tonight at, a, at the introduction of Saul in the book of Acts, the introduction of the villain. And I just want us to look at, at one verse right away. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, <clears throat> Acts chapter 8, verse 1, just this first part here. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. And you guys are like, who's executed? Wow, that escalated. <laughs> I'm going to give a little spoiler alert, okay? Tonight we're going to be looking at a story of a guy named Stephen. And Stephen uh, is this incredible guy. He's filled with the Spirit. And you remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that word witness is actually martus. It's where we get our word martyr. And a martyr is someone who dies for their faith. Stephen the guy we're about to look at, is the first person in the history of Christianity to die because they believed in Jesus. So he's a very significant hero of the faith in the early movement. But he angered some people, some really religious people driven by control and comfort, and they wanted to snuff this fire out to the point of murder, which is kind of wild that they got that angry, but they did. And Saul approved of his execution this is like the introduction of saul in the book of acts acts chapter 8 verse 1 this is the first impression we get of saul and so okay spoiler alert here's what's about to happen to Stephen. he angers these people and they become so enraged they they drag him outside of the city and the method of murder that they chose was to stone him which is where you literally pick up stones and zing like you throw them at someone like my tomato ward, yes, Uh, until they died. Brutal, cruel. Saul actually collected the outer garments of the people who wanted to stone Stephen. In other words, Saul was like, hey, 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 before we start throwing these stones, I don't want you to be encumbered by anything. I don't want you to be restricted by your clothes. I want to make sure you're able to, and a jacket might get in the way. So here, give me your jackets, give me your coats. Like, can you imagine the evilness in someone's heart to say, hey, when you, when you stone this dude, I wanna make sure your fastball is right on par. So go ahead and give me that coat because I want you to have full range of motion. So he collected the garments of people stoning Stephen and he's standing there and when it's all said and done, when Stephen's on the ground and he's dead and he's been murdered, maybe they second guess, maybe they were like, the adrenaline faded and they realize the shock of what they just did and they look over to Saul to see what he's doing and Acts chapter eight, verse one, the first impression we get of Saul says, Saul approved. He's an influential guy. He has power. He has status. And they looked to him to see what he thought. Our first impression of the villain. Good job. We did it. We got another one. He approved. So now let's look at Stephen. Let's back up, okay, to Acts chapter 6. Let's get the introduction to Stephen. So here's what's going on. The church is growing. God is blessing their numbers like crazy And people are coming to the faith, and coming to the faith, and the Spirit's pouring out. They're being filled with power! Right? You guys with me tonight? Okay. Yes. Anyone remember the, anyone remember the word for power? Dunamis. Dynamite. All right. <laughs> so they're filled with power the church is growing but then this problem arises as the church grew the problems grew and these people are like hey man we got a ton of widows over here who don't have anyone taking care of them we need someone to take care of them and the disciples are like great idea let's choose seven people to go take care of these widows and this guy named Stephen is chosen from among the seven and this is the introduction we get of Stephen let's let's look at Acts chapter 6 verse 8 here this is the introduction we get of Stephen Stephen full of grace and power, dunamis, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. First introduction of the villain Saul, he approved of the execution. Pretty bad dude, man. Like, i hold your coat so you can throw a fastball. Like, duh. First impression of Stephen, a man full of grace And the spirit and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In fact, he was appointed to go take care of widows. Like, ladies, (laughs) this is what to look for right here. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yow, (laughs) yow. Swipe right. All right. On the Christian dating apps, on the Christian dating apps. Christian Mingle. Of course. (laughs) <laughs> ah! Oh man. Matthew. Okay. This is our first impression of Stephen, manful of grace, of, of spirit, power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. And guess who this angered? The religious people The same people that murdered Jesus. The same people who felt so offended because Jesus, God in the flesh, was disrupting their power, their infrastructure, their influence, control and comfort. They didn't like Stephen. So they actually tried to go toe-to-toe with him. They tried to debate with him. And they couldn't stand up to him. He was too full of the Spirit, and he was too full of wisdom. Is what the Bible says. And they come back, and they're like, hey, how'd it go? And they're like, we didn't know how to talk to him. He's so smart. <laughs> like, they couldn't, de- they couldn't debate with him. And so then the religious leaders are like, well, what are we going to do about it? And they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll lie. If we can't beat them, if we can't go toe-to-toe, if we can't debate with them." We'll lie about him. We'll, we'll, we'll make up lies. We'll say he said this, and we'll say he made that threat, and we'll say he claimed this, and this Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> like they made up all these lies about Stephen and Jesus just so that they could falsely accuse him. So he was arrested, and he was brought before the council, the same guys that put Jesus on the cross, the same ones that instigated the crowd to shout, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, the same people are now looking at Stephen. Acts chapter seven, verse one, they ask him this question. Is it true? Are all these accusations that we're hearing, did you really say those things? Is it true? They wanna know. Now what's amazing in this moment is Stephen does not not decide to talk about himself. He decides to talk about them and their heritage and Jesus, which is amazing. Guys, when we're under the microscope, when when our reputation starts to be investigated and people start to poke and prod and like, hey man, I heard you did this, or I heard you said that. Our initial reaction is to try to defend ourselves. No, 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 Like, you got it all wrong. Here's what actually happened. Here's what was actually said, blah, 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 blah. I'm gonna give you a principle of life real quick. You focus on your character, and you let God take care of your reputation. Sheesh. The more you, look, the more you try to defend your own reputation, the more time, the more time you're gonna spend Convincing people who I don't think really want to be convinced. You focus on your character and let God take care of your reputation. Stephen doesn't even respond. Hey, is this true? We heard you've been saying this and talking and threatening that. Is it true? Stephen says, I got a little story for you. all Now, this, this council that's now interrogating him, these are religious leaders belonging to the, to the Jewish faith, the Judaism, which... It's based on the Old Testament laws of Moses. And it's not a bad thing, guys. The law of Moses, the Old Testament, is a gift that was given to God's people at a certain time in history. But it was intended to point them forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. It was never intended for them to become so deeply rooted in it that they would actually miss the Messiah, and that's what's happening. Jesus is the center point of history everything in the Bible is about Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to him who is coming. The entire New Testament points to him who came. It's all about Jesus. And Stephen knows he's talking to Jewish elite religious leaders. He knows they are steeped in Old Testament, and so he goes to the Old Testament. Hey, is it true you've been saying this, Stephen? Now, this is Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 50. We, I'm not going to read it. We don't have time to read it. I'm going to summarize it. But basically, Stephen starts in the book of Genesis. And he goes through the entire Old Testament. Like, you want to talk about someone who knows the Scriptures? You ever try to summarize the Old Testament before? Jeez. Like, Stephen's about to. <laughs> is it true, Stephen, did you say these things? He said, man... I'm gonna summarize, you can follow along in chapter seven. It's basically paragraph by paragraph. He says, man, God made a a relationship with this guy named Abraham, the father of our faith. And he made a couple promises to Abraham. He said he would give him land and children, but there was a problem. Abraham didn't have any children. His wife was barren. But then God blessed that, and he started to give him children. And then Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. They're known as the patriarchs. And one of those sons was this guy named Joseph. And God wanted to raise up Joseph and his brothers became jealous and so they plotted against Joseph. And they decided we're gonna get rid of our own brother. And they wanted to kill him at first but then they changed their mind and they decided to sell him as a slave. And Joseph eventually wound up in Egypt. But then God blessed Joseph and he started to rise in influence in Egypt and eventually he became second in charge only after Pharaoh. And then this great famine came, and everyone was starving and hungry, but Joseph planned for it, and he planned ahead, and he delivered the entire nation of Egypt. But his brothers and their families, the ones who betrayed him so long ago, were starving, and they heard about Egypt doing well, so they traveled to Egypt to get food. And Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and he forgave them, and they reconciled. And so then this family moved into Egypt, and God blessed them. But after a time... A new Pharaoh, a new king of Egypt came into power who didn't care for Joseph and didn't care for his family. And he began to see all these Hebrew people multiplying and having kids and becoming more and more populated. And he became afraid of the Hebrews. And so he did two things. He started to enslave them to accomplish his own agenda. And he decided to kill all the babies of one generation. That way they wouldn't be able to multiply anymore. But God in his mercy spared this little baby named Moses, who actually began to grow up in the palace of Pharaoh right under his nose and was trained and raised in the Egyptian palace. And when Moses was about 40 years old, he came outside, his heart was stirred, and he saw how the Egyptians were treating his brothers, the Hebrews. And there was this altercation happening, and Moses intervened and protected the Hebrews, thinking that they would recognize him as their salvation and deliver, and they didn't, they turned on him. So Moses became afraid, and he ran to the desert, and he lived there for 40 years, but God still wanted to deliver his people from slavery, and so he has Moses to go back and deliver his people, and so he did, and he leads them out into the wilderness, and this generation saw the greatest miracles of God that have ever happened condensed in that short period of time. And God, desiring to to give instruction to his people to clarify his love, gave them a law. And he invited Moses up onto this mountain where Moses was receiving the instructions and oracles of God. But the people began to become discontent and bitter, and in their hearts they turned Back to Egypt, they would have actually preferred to be slaves as opposed to follow God. And they said, Hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let us just melt all of our gold and form it into the image of a cow. And yeah, we'll worship that. And Moses came back down the mountain and <laughs> said, What are you doing? But God had mercy on them. And eventually he'd raise up a new leader named Joshua, and Joshua would lead his people into the land that God had promised Abraham so long ago and begin to bless them and multiply the promise he made to Abraham so long ago. And eventually kings would come. We talked about a few, King Saul and King David. And David desired to build a house for God, and God wouldn't allow it, but David's son Solomon eventually did build a house. And God's response to them is, what house could contain me that you could build? I created everything. The heavens are my throne. The earth is my footstool. You're trying to contain me there. <sighs> That's Acts 7, 1 through 50. Summarized. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I could do it like Morgan Freeman. That would have been good. Oh, Stephen. <laughs> A man full of grace and truth. Um, yeah, it's my best. Sorry. Why did Stephen even go there? Why is he talking Old Testament? This is his point. This is his point to these religious leaders who are are shackled to control and comfort and are so afraid of this movement and were so afraid of what Jesus was doing. This was Stephen's point in saying all that. All throughout history, God has been moving. And all throughout history, people have tried to stop what God is doing and God's movement prevails anyway. God made promises to Abraham, but Abraham was, Abraham's wife was barren. God gave him kids anyway. Some of those kids turned on their brother and it looked like all hope was lost and God blessed Joseph anyway. Came second in command in Egypt. A famine hit, but Joseph prepared. The brothers came, but they reconciled. A new pharaoh enslaved them, but he gave them a deliverer, Moses. The people turned on Moses, but God brought him back. Moses led the people out of Egypt, But they turned against God, they disobeyed him, they worshiped false gods, so God forgave them anyway and gave them Joshua, and and he led them into the land. All throughout history, people have tried to stop what God is doing, and God's plan prevails anyway. Hashtag Drake! God's plan. Man, never do that again. He says all that to now be able to give himself the the, the platform to now point at them and say, God is doing a new thing right now through Jesus and through us, and you're trying to stop it, but it can't be stopped. That's what he's saying. This movement that you're trying to snuff out can't be stopped. Stephen, did you say these things? Let me walk you through the Old Testament. You're just like them. That's his point. So let's look at verse 51. This is Stephen's rebuke to now the religious leaders that are interrogating him. He looks at at them and he says, you stiff-necked people. In other words, you stubborn, you obtuse, you unteachable, stuck in your ways, you stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now what does that mean? That's kind of a weird... I, I, would, I would go out on a limb here to say you've never used that insult before. Somebody throws shade your way. Well, yeah, but you're uncircumcised in your heart. It's a weird insult. He just said, what now? I'm, an, I'm in my heart? Oh, okay, man. What's he talking about? In Jewish tradition, Old Testament, remember he's talking to religious leaders who are based in in the Old Testament. They're unwilling to embrace Jesus as the Messiah whom the Old Testament pointed to. They're stuck in their ways, control and comfort. In the Old Testament, when you entered this covenant with God, this relationship with God, this agreement of the relationship, in Jewish tradition, circumcision was the mark of that relationship. So babies would be circumcised on the eighth day, as the mark that they are in this covenant, in this community of people who follow God. It was part of the covenant in the Old Testament. Stephen's looking at these Jewish leaders, understanding their rituals and the covenant, and he looks at them and he says, you are uncircumcised of heart and ears. In other words, in other words, this is his, his insult, this is his diss here. In other words, you've done everything necessary on the outside. But on the inside, there is no relationship with God. And furthermore, you wouldn't even be able to hear it if God was doing it. Your ears are deaf to what God is doing. Your heart's not been touched. Your ears are closed off. You may have done everything externally to enter this relationship with God, but internally nothing is happening. I mean, he's he's giving it, right? He's going off. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. He just walked them through example after example after example. Which which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Like, which person came along? Which person did God send that your fathers didn't persecute? People from God you persecuted, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you've now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and didn't even keep it. Like their whole premise is, we obey the law. And Stephen's like, you got nothing on the inside. Your fathers persecuted the prophets. They talked about Jesus. They killed them. You guys killed Jesus, the one of whom they spoke. This law that you claim, you don't even follow it. He's going off, man. No cap, like he is getting it. This is what's, this is what's really, this is what's really interesting to me about this, this dynamic. When we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, when we, personally, us, when we read the Bible, we have a tendency towards what's called the Cinderella syndrome. If you know the story of Cinderella. Look, man. <laughs> we don't have time, but that's a problem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The Cinderella syndrome is like that I'm, I'm the, I'm the good person in the story. Like I, I, I'm the one who's good and, and like I'm the one who's going to get blessed and the pumpkin becomes a carriage and the mice make my clothes. I can't quite remember how the movie goes, but it's like, but like I'm the main one and everyone else is mean to me. And, and man, like, it, it, like I'm the one who deserves to be blessed and I'm the one who deserves the happily ever after, right? When we read the scriptures, we have this tendency as we read it to insert ourselves into the narrative of the good person. Like reading through this story, are you associating with Stephen? Like, yeah, give it to him, Stephen. Like, yeah, ooh. Yeah, Stephen, that's, ooh, let's tell him. But what if we're not Stephen? What if we're the ones he's talking to? We do a fantastic job of interpreting ourselves as the hero or the main character or the good one in the stories. But what if we're the ones that Stephen's talking to? Hear me on this, because what's amazing to me about this passage is he's talking to people who believed in God, who were familiar with God, they were very religious, they had all the externals going on, they even knew who Jesus was, they murdered him, but they knew who he was, and yet inside there was nothing going on, their heart. Who are you in this passage? I'll tell you, man, I've been in student ministry a long time, 15 years. And I've had a lot of conversations with students. And inevitably, there's some reality that hits for a lot of us that's basically like, Matt, I don't understand, like I I believe in Jesus, like I love Jesus, but at the same time, like I just, dude, I don't know, I, I wanna live the life I wanna live too. Like I wanna have my weekends, I wanna go out and party, I wanna do my own things, you know what I mean? I wanna date that person, I wanna do those things. I don't wanna give those up. Remember comfort, inability to sacrifice for God? I don't want to give these things up. Remember control, inability to to submit because we think our ways are better. I have this conversation, (laughs) like it's memorized, like it's happened so much. And when when I kind of push back in and say, all right, well, just tell me about like your walk with Jesus. Talk to me about your relationship. Like describe it for me. It just seems like this stale, mundane, mediocre, sleepy, boring faith. We have all the externals, like we know the right people, we go to church, we're in the circles, we say the right things, do the right things. We grew up in the Christian home, we're from the southeast of America where Christianity is cultural, church on every corner. It's not that difficult to be a Christian where we come from and so we begin to associate as we grow older by name. Oh yeah, yeah, I like Jesus too, I love Jesus. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's like we're missing the internal components of what it actually means. And we're hanging on to comfort and control. We don't know how to sacrifice or submit. And then all of a sudden we have this awakening that's like, dude, what's going on? I I, I claim it, but I don't feel it. You ever made that statement? I just don't feel it. I have this conversation and it's heartbreaking, but clearly there's something missing. Sixteen years ago, I was sitting in a room just like this. I had just given my life to Jesus, like a couple of months before this. I was a brand new believer, and this speaker came and was speaking to uh, the room. His name was Adrian, and he gave this sermon that like rocked my world, man. Sixteen years ago, last year, I actually was in Colorado and I saw him there, and I was like, "Yo, yo, Adrian." I was like, dude, you don't know this, but 16 years ago, you preached a message that changed my life. Like, I'm a preacher because of you. Like, God used your sermon to call me into ministry. He's was like, oh, so awesome, dude. I'm like, but he preached this sermon and he calls it the four chair sermon. Maybe some of you guys have heard it. But basically, he puts these four chairs on the stage and he identifies them. He says, all right, chair number four over here, chair number four is a person who has chosen not to believe in Jesus. They've they've made the decision, it's clear cut in their mind, they've chosen it, like it's, it's part of their decision. Maybe they believe in something else or they're agnostic or atheist or whatever, but they've chosen it not to believe in Jesus. They're aware of their choice, right? That's chair four. Chair number one is the person who believes in Jesus and is just so passionately in love with him and radically in love, man. They're filled with the spirit, full of grace like Stephen, full of power like Stephen. What Jesus talks about in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive dunamis. That's chair one. They're passionate. They're not afraid. They're not embarrassed. They know people think they're weird. They know people think they're extra. They don't care. They love Jesus. They understand how to surrender, to submit, and how to sacrifice. But what about these other two chairs? Adrian continues to clarify. He says, this guy right here, chair three, is the person who thinks they believe in Jesus, but actually doesn't believe in Jesus. They're convinced they do, in their minds, they're convinced because maybe they grew up with it or are from a family or grew up in church or they're so familiar that they just inherited the language but they never actually made the decision to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to repent of their sin. They've never placed their faith in Jesus. And I'll go ahead and confess to you guys, I was chair three when I was a teenager. I thought I was cool, but as I began to ask questions and understand the good news of Jesus that he wants a relationship with me, it became very clear, I don't have a relationship with him. I was chair three. Chair four, willing decision not to follow Jesus. Chair three, someone who thinks they believe in Jesus but doesn't, that was me. Chair one, someone who's radically passionate, I love Jesus, you're the best, Jesus! That's chair one. What's chair two? Chair two is someone who believes in Jesus But they look at chair one, and they're like, dude, you are so weird. You are so annoying. You're so over the top in your faith, dude. Can you just, like, come down a few levels? You make us so uncomfortable because we feel like we have to be as passionate as you are about our faith in Jesus. Otherwise, it's not real. Like, dude, can you just chill? We've got it figured out. We believe in Jesus, and we can still live our lives, too. I had a student tell me this exact thing one time, a few years ago. Matt, I got it, man. I'm gonna continue to come on church on Sundays. I'm gonna continue to party on the weekends. Best of both worlds. I was like, dude. They look, chair two, those who believe in Jesus, but are not passionate about it. It is a mundane, mediocre, sleepy, boring, apathetic faith. They look at chair one as annoying. It's frustrating. Why do you got to be that over the top, man? Why do you got to be that zealous? Why do you got to be that? Come on, dude. It's just too much. You're weird. And so chair two defines, they've created this new category of what it means to follow Jesus, where you can follow Jesus without sacrifice, and you can follow Jesus without submission. You can just believe in him and name, and yeah, like you actually believe in him, but you don't really live it. You still do all the things you wanna do, even if you know they're wrong. You date that person, you do those things, you go to that place, you go to that party, you drink that, you smoke that, you take that. You know what I'm talking about. You have this like double life going on and somehow you've normalized it. What Dallas said this morning, you look at things like Peter and John and and you're like, no, 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 man, like somehow these guys are just different. No, they're not, they're normal guys. That's what normal Christianity looks like when you actually get it. The problem is we've created such a a mundane and mediocre version of Christianity that is so below the, the normal line that this has become normal and anyone who actually is normal in their love and passion for Jesus seems abnormal. Chair two gets annoyed with chair one. Chair two comforts chair three because chair three is looking at their life and looking at chair two. Like, yeah, our lives aren't really that different. I don't know what chairs one doing over there. Like, they're they're weirdos, man, but we're cool. Like, I believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, this is great. And there's no distinction. They're never challenged by chair two. Chair four looks at chair two and says, yeah, you're the reason I don't follow Jesus. Because I hear what Jesus is like, but then I look at you and I'm like, yeah. That's fate." I tell you, man, as a 16-year-old kid sitting in a room just like this, he was preaching this sermon, and I was like, oh, oh, oh. like, my heart. Stephen is talking to guys who are in like a chair two, three combo. Like they know God. But as Stephen said, you've got nothing in the heart. You've done everything external that you need to do, but you've got nothing here. In fact, you couldn't even hear it if God was doing it. Look at their response to Stephen. Now when they heard these things, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they became enraged. Enraged. like angry, Hulk smash, you know, like the the switch flipped. It says, and they ground their teeth at him. You ever been so mad with someone that you just sit there, like rabies. Something's up, foaming at the mouth stuff. Like they became enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. There, I love it, man. Hey, Stephen, did you say these things? He's like, let me tell you about the Old Testament. Is you. And they got angry. And he's meanwhile just looking up in the sky. He's like not even concerned about the reality here. He's looking up into heaven. He gazes up into the sky. And he sees the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god you know how significant this is all throughout the new testament all throughout the bible we see jesus described as seated on the throne as seated at the right hand of god his posture his position is seated marking an accomplished work the work's done he is seated he has taken his throne that's his position stephen looks into heaven and sees jesus standing what is that about everyone else throughout the history of the bible sees jesus seated on the throne and stephen looks and sees him standing it's like jesus opened up heaven and allowed Stephen to see into it. He's like up off his throne. What do you do when you stand? I think Jesus was up there. Yeah! Stephen! You got it! Open arms. It's me, buddy. That's my brother down there. He's talking about me. Stephen! Look at this. This is what you're about to come to. I see Jesus standing. I see the glory of God. Verse 57, they were not about to hear that. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Remember he said, you don't even have circumcised ears. He's calling them deaf and it's exactly true. He looks into heaven and sees Jesus and they're like, like the most childish response. And they rushed him, this angry mob of teeth, grinding, ear-plugging, angry religious people holding on to control and comfort, can't handle the gospel, and they rush him, and they seize him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, they murdered him. the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who approved this execution. And as they were stoning Stephen, listen to what he says. He's being pelted, he's being hit. Stones are flying at him and whizzing by connecting and blood's coming. He called out, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Don't hold this sin against them. It's the same words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen repeats it. Lord, don't blame them. Don't hold this sin against them. They don't know. They can't hear. They don't have the heart. They're in chair two. They think this is normal. And with this, he fell asleep. Or in other words, he died. grace and the spirit of power did great signs and wonders in this new movement that god was doing but those who were holding on to control and comfort got angry got annoyed they looked at him like he was weird what are you doing man don't you see you make us uncomfortable you see man this this we've got it this is normal we've created a new thing this position of power and status and reputation you're disrupting that Who are you in this passage I hope and I pray that you're Stephen but let us not make the same mistake that these religious people made, that they were so set in their ways, they were unwilling and unable to hear what the Spirit might be saying to them. That you've got all the externals figured out, and you look the right way, talk the right way, go to the right church, you know the right people, you got the right circles, you're from the right family, you live in the right neighborhood, congratulations and kudos. But that does nothing for your heart. And some of us in this room have created a life centered around control and comfort. And we claim Jesus just enough that we're happy with where we are. Like, yeah, we got it by name. I don't really want to give up my life. Like, I'm not willing to sacrifice. I'm not willing to submit. I don't want him to have control. That's weird. Passionate in love people with Jesus, that's a little bit too much. I'm not about that. But I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus. I just don't want to, you know, give him control and sacrifice. We've redefined normal to something way down here. And then we look at what normal is as if it's so weird. are you in this passage? The question I would ask, I would put it like this. Are you in the club or are you in the kingdom? Club members say, yeah, we know Jesus by name. We go to church. We got the religious stuff down. We're from the right family. We believe in Jesus. We even own a Bible. We look at it sometimes even. We try to pray. But inside, inside, the heart, the heart, that's what matters, not actions, the heart. Inside is spiritually asleep. There's nothing, there's no connection. It's all actions and no intimacy. So we keep living our lives and we keep doing our own thing and we keep making our decisions and we don't submit to God and we don't sacrifice for Jesus. That's club, man. Talking the right way, saying the right things externals looking the right way that's club but inside is dead kingdom on the other hand it begins with the heart and our love for Jesus and our passion for Jesus and it overflows within us because we're spirit filled and we want to see what God's doing on this earth and we want to partner with him in it whatever that looks like and we just can't help but be that excited and the heart then leads to actions the overflow leads to our actions But in the club, we try to create all these actions and we're hoping they affect our heart. It never works that way. Heart overflows to actions. Actions don't touch the heart. Are you in the kingdom or are you in the club? It is possible to be so religious and yet so far from God at the same time as we just saw. And so tonight, I wanna give you the opportunity to believe in Jesus place your faith in Jesus, to move from club to kingdom, to move from chairs two, three, and four to chair one. I wanna give you that opportunity. I believe in public responses like this because we've already looked at a few in the early church. Peter's preaching and 3,000 people come to know him. Peter and John are preaching and 5,000 people are there coming to know him. These are public professions. And I know sometimes they can be intimidating because it's like, ah, people are watching, who's around? But I believe that how we begin our journey with Jesus will define how we walk with Jesus. And if we're too embarrassed to respond to him around people, we're gonna to be too embarrassed to live it out around people. So I like public professions like this. And so I'm gonna offer an invitation tonight. And I pray that the spirit is moving right now in this room. But I wanna offer an invitation to you guys right now. If You're sitting in this room, if you're a student, if you're a leader, and something hits you tonight, you're like. I need it. I want to offer you an invitation. If you would like to believe in Jesus for the first time ever, to place your faith in Jesus, to start walking and following Jesus, to begin a relationship with Jesus that you never have before, but you want to start tonight, I want to ask you right here and right now with all the courage that you can bring to stand up right where you're at. Amen. Amen. Amen, man. Amen. We got one. Are there others? Are there others? Congratulations, man. Congratulations. 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 Yes, yes, yes. I see you. We love you. We're celebrating. This is nothing to be embarrassed about. I see you. I see you. Absolutely. Are there others? Are there others? You're saying, you know what, I've never believed, I thought I did, but tonight I'm doing it. Are there others? No, stay standing, stay standing. Are there others who would like, yeah, I see you, buddy. I see you. I love it. Stay standing. I want you guys to know that right now the angels are like, party and having a huge celebration. They're praising Jesus. The Spirit is in this room. He's pouring himself out. He's filling you guys. Small group leaders, take a note, stay standing because the invitation's not done yet. A lot of us are in chair two. We believe but just enough to be covered. We believe but just enough to claim the name of Jesus. And if we died, you know, we'd go, we'd, we'd be with him, we know. But we know that our life is not being lived for him. We know we're far from. And if the spirit has touched your heart or pricked your heart tonight, that's called conviction. It means, hey, he's trying to tell you something's wrong. I love you, but something's wrong. He doesn't bring shame and he doesn't bring guilt. He brings conviction. It's his way of letting us know, hey, you're drifting, you're far, I need you back, I want you back. And if you're in the room tonight and you identify as chair two, and you're like, man, I I believe in Jesus, I really do, but I'm not living it, I'm not passionate, I become so stale and mundane and mediocre in my faith. I don't even live it out. I don't even really seek God, I believe, but I don't do anything with it. But I wanna get in that chair one, man. I wanna be filled with the spirit. I wanna know what that's like. I wanna be passionate. I wanna come back to Jesus. Call this a recommitment. I've been there before, but I've drifted. I wanna come back. I wanna invite you right now to stand in your seats and make a bold public profession I've drifted, but I'm coming back. Amen, 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 amen. We see you. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Let's go. Absolutely. I'm so proud of you guys. I'm so proud of you. Stay standing, stay standing. I'm so proud of you guys. I know it's so hard and you're like, man, who's going to see? But this is not an embarrassing thing. This is called repentance. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I'm sorry if it's you. I'm going to give you one last chance to stand and make it a public thing. I'm coming back. Last few seconds. Last few seconds. I see you guys. I see you guys. I'm so proud of you guys. I love it. I love it. Bible says that Jesus forgives that there is no shame and no guilt in Jesus he wipes away those things this is not a shame time it's not a guilt time the spirit is moving and you are responding that's called obeying and I couldn't be more proud of you guys tonight the angels are celebrating and we're about to celebrate I'm going to pray for you we're going to worship a little bit more We're so excited, we're so proud. And after we worship, when you go to small group times, I want you guys to share with your small group the decision you made. Whether it was a first time follow or a coming back, I want you to share and be proud and be encouraged and be supported by the body of Jesus, his people. Because the presence of Jesus is in this room. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you, we love you. You are awesome. Stephen looked into heaven. And saw your glory and saw you standing there, cheering him on, welcoming him into your presence. And tonight you moved. It wasn't me, it wasn't the band, it wasn't, it, it was only your spirit that could do something like this to bring life to our hearts just externals but internals to give us new life and so Jesus we pray over these standing for those who place their faith in you and want to believe in you Jesus we rejoice The Bible says they're now your children they're your brothers and sisters that you've adopted them into the family that you've given them your spirit that you've forgiven their sins Jesus, for those who have come back and said, man, we've been drifting, we've been stale, we've been asleep on this thing, but we are so tired of mundane and mediocre, we want it. Jesus, we pray blessing, passion and boldness and courage, stamina and strength to resist the enemy and to be diligent in our faith and in our walk. It's hard, but you give us your grace and you give us your spirit, just like Stephen we saw. So we pray over that. Jesus, for those still sitting, it means that they know where they're at, man. They're cheer one. They love you. They're passionate about it. And we thank you so much for their faith. Spirit, thank you. Thank you for pouring yourself out, for speaking through me. Thank you. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name.